you that we would be skipping around. We wouldn't be going straight through. So, um, so Psalm, that's why we're in Psalm 10 today and not Psalm 4. So Psalm chapter 10, I'll read those verses for us. This is God's word. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his, in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the, ev- the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is God's word. It's entirely true and given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this strong reminder from your word that no matter what is happening in this world or in our lives, no matter what turmoil or suffering or oppression that we see or experience, we know that you, as David tells us, that you are the king forever and ever. So open our eyes and open our ears to behold wonderful and glorious things from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summer we're, uh, we've been looking at various psalms, like I said, and I, I know for me um, that the psalms uh, have been a source of, of great encouragement and comfort and growth as a Christian. So whenever I'm experiencing any kind of... Uh, of, of heartache or suffering or I'm just I'm just struggling with how to pray and what words to use I run to the Psalms because the Psalms being poetry give us words and emotions and even experiences for the Christian life some that we we have some emotions and words and experiences that we have and then others that we that we don't have because we haven't walked through those things yet the Psalms help give you a framework to understand reality, which is exactly what King David, who is the author of Psalm 10, is doing for us this morning. 
in this psalm, we are given three practical understandings of what it means to practice our belief or practice our faith. And there's three things here. One is asking practical questions. Two is recognizing practical atheism. And then three is understanding practical belief. So practical questions, practical atheism, and then practical belief. So first, practical questions. This psalm begins with two very specific questions that are directed toward God. David asks the question, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So the context of this is David is seeing the suffering and seeing the injustice uh, around him, and his natural response to the injustice and to the suffering that he sees is to cry out to God with questions, not answers. He doesn't try to tell the poor or to tell those who are suffering injustice, this is why this is happening. He asks questions. And it's an appropriate response because it's a biblical response. It's important to ask questions. And it's important to ask questions of God. Because questions involve thinking, and thinking obviously involves growth. So we should welcome questions, especially questions that have to do with God. I know that whenever my kids will just ask me a random question that has to do with anything around the Bible, Christianity, or God, I always pause. I never, I never skirt over those questions. Because there's growth involved in the answering of those questions. Because the questions that we ask have a way of directing us, moving us in a certain direction. So if my son asks me, uh, can I go to my friend's house, the answer that I give him will direct him and what he'll do next. He'll either go to his friend's house or not go to his friend's house. Now, on a deeper level, asking questions of God, uh, it, it's helpful to ask the questions, but it's, uh, it's also just helpful or to voice the questions, but it's also helpful in, in putting our minds in a place of thinking about God and his character and then it directs us in what to do next. So when we, when we begin to ask these questions like King David is asking in verse 1, it begins to, to frame our minds in such a way to hear from God, but also, uh, we could say, to see in the way that God sees the world. So we're not automatically just answering our own questions from our own point of view or our own presuppositions. We're, we're actually answering the questions and looking at the world in the way in which God wants us to see it. So David knows God well enough to know what the world would look like if God hid his face from the world. But he also knows, because he's asking the questions, he also knows, knows God well enough that he does not hide his face. And you can just look back at Psalm 2 to remember that. So asking questions is a way for you to make sense of God, even when you can't come to the conclusions that you want to come to uh, about God or about a particular situation. 
to the questions that we ask and the answers that we seek, hopefully, in God's promises, in his words, uh, in his word, strengthens us and deepens our faith. Even just in the asking of the questions. Because to just take what we hear at face value doesn't lead to growth. So if I tell, uh, tell you or, or even just to tell my kids, just here's, here's what I believe, I just want you, just believe it. Don't question it, believe it. They are not going to grow that way. And more than likely, they are going to push back. Actually, I know my kids because they're, yeah, anyways. They, they will push back on that and rebel against it just like you would and just like I would. We don't just take things at face value. I was reminded of this. Um, I've been watching the new Marvel series, Loki. I'm sure some of you guys have do, been doing that as well. And there's this interaction, and, and this is not a spoiler. I know I do that, Meredith and Chili's. I know I've done that before in the past. I will not do that today. But, uh, but there's this, this part where Loki and uh, Owen Wilson's character named Agent Mobius are having this conversation uh, in his uh, place of work at the TVA headquarters and so they're going back and forth and he's asking him he's essentially Loki is asking him about the reality of the world in which he finds himself this TVA reality and Loki asks him this question he says you really believe in all of this stuff don't you to which agent Mobius says I don't get hung up on believe and not believe I just accept what is Now, our poet in Psalm 10 is teaching us that this is not how biblical Christianity works. We don't just uh, accept what is. I mean, if you think about it, that's really not how any of life works. I would hope that you would not just accept what is, but that you would ask questions. So I think this is why we have many who are now beginning to not only doubt the faith of their, of, their, of their parents and doubt the faith that they grew up with and doubt the faith that they've been taught and kind of fed, but they're, but they're taking that same faith and they're, they're deconstructing it altogether. And what we're seeing statistically is that more and more people are walking away from the faith when they leave their, their family of origin and not believing any longer. And I think one of the reasons for this is that they've been unable to ask honest questions. Or if they've been able to ask honest questions, they have not been able to get in return thoughtful, honest, and loving answers. So I just want you to know that Christ the King Church is a place where you can ask questions. Where, where you can wrestle with doubts and where you can, uh, where you can kind of uh, interact with the hard things that you see going on in the world. Because I'm not going to lie to you, to watch the suffering and the oppression uh, that you see constantly in the news is hard to watch. It's hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to understand sometimes why God allows these things to happen. And the reason I can say that we can do that as a church is because of verse 1. 
It's because of what King David does in verse 1. And David, if you notice, doesn't get rebuked because he asked a couple of questions. It's actually, if you continue to read through the Psalms, even on your own, it's actually a natural practice of David's prayer life to ask questions of God while he's praying. It's a good practice to have. Now, if that doesn't convince you, we also have this modeled to us by Jesus our Lord. If you remember on the cross, Jesus asked the question from Psalm 22:1, which is his question from, from the very beginning, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he doesn't get an answer. But he asked the question. So questions help frame our thinking toward God when they are honest questions. Author A.J. Swoboda, which is such a fun name to say, but uh, he writes in his book, After Doubt, he writes these words. He says, Jesus will lovingly make space for our honest questions. You see that throughout the Gospels, that Jesus does that. He lovingly makes space for our honest questions, but not for our critical skepticism, nor dishonest questions or attempts to trap him. In these moments, we'll find no answers that will satisfy. So when we can approach God with honest questions, that's when we are ready to find, uh, or we're ready for honest answers, and sometimes no answers, which will help you to avoid slipping into uh, what we call in our second point, practical atheism in verses 2 through 13. So just like the rebels that we met back in Psalm 2, these in Psalm 10 are also not full-blown atheists yet. They know who the God of the Bible is. They know uh, what he asks of them. They just don't do it. They just refuse to do what God is asking of them. That's why we call them rebels. They're rebelling against God's truth because they're, they're making too much money. They're, they're having way too much fun. They have everything they need and desire. They don't feel a bit of suffering or anguish. And they really, at the end of the day, they really like their autonomy. They don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to have demands upon them or commands given to them by this deity. So life seems to be working okay for them, and they're asking the question then, why do I need God? I'm not suffering. I have a full bank account. Why do I need God? Martin Luther said this about these particular verses. He says, this, There is not in my judgment a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. To which the, the pastor and commentator James Montgomery voice just simply describes it as practical atheism. Meaning there are, there are a couple of different types of atheism that you see both in the Bible, but we also see in the world. The first, the first type of atheism that we see is, is what we would call a theoretical atheism. This is the type of atheism that we're all used to. We're, this is the type of atheism that we, that we normally think about when we hear the word atheist or atheism. So you have the, 
the, Christ, the Christopher Hitchens, the Richard Dawkins, the Ricky Gervais type of atheists who are, who are just coming out and, and really angry uh, at this whole idea of a higher power, not just the God of the Bible, but any God that is mentioned. And then you also hear it in the Psalms. The Psalms describe them as the fool, these who would deny that there is a God. Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 both begin with these words. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So this is the person who truly believes there is no higher power, no God of any kind, that, master, that humans are truly the masters of their destinies. They're truly autonomous creatures in need of no outside intervention. That's the theoretical atheist. The second type of atheist is the practical atheist. Now, this is the type of atheist who who might acknowledge that there is a God. They may join in with you when you say, you know, uh, uh, those who say that there is no God, those people are fools. They would join right in with you and say, yes, you are right. They are fools. We believe in God. These may even be people who are sitting next to you on a Sunday or sitting with you in your missional community every single week. Uh, they may even be uh, really, really involved in the life of the church. This is how the Bible scholar P.C. Craig describes these people. He says, the practical atheist is not concerned so much with the theoretical question as to God's existence. They they believe that God exists. Rather, he lives and behaves as if God did not exist. I've said this before, this this formula. You probably remember it, but this formula, just you might want to jot it down because I think it's a really important one. That stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. So what you say you believe plus what, how you actually live your life or how you actually behave equals what you actually believe. This is the type of atheist Psalm 10 is describing. One whose stated belief and actual practice don't add up correctly. So let me just give you some, uh, some, uh, some, uh, some tools to evaluate your own life from the text. So five characteristics of a, of a practical atheist. First, we have arrogance or pride. And I can just say pride just, pride just kind of covers all of these five characteristics, just so you know. There's, pride is never absent from any of these characteristics, but it is one characteristic on its own. So pride in verses 2 through, two th- two through 4 um, it shows us that this one here thinks that they are untouchable by everyone, including God. Verse 4 says, all his thoughts. So he's not at the level of, of actually saying this out loud, but the way that he is thinking, all his thoughts are, there is no God. That's what he's thinking. The second characteristic is prosperity. This is the one who thinks God helps those who help themselves. Maybe you've heard that before. That's not in the Bible, by the way. These see God as irrelevant to life. 
Verse 5 tells us that uh, he doesn't even lift his eyes to God. He knows he's there. He knows that he is present. He knows that he is true, but he doesn't even look up. Which is a, which is a, is a, is a contrast to what we see in other parts of the psalm, like Psalm 123.1, where, uh, where the author says, uh, To you, O Lord, I lift up my eyes. I lift them up. I look to you. The third characteristic is security. And this uh, security specifically has to deal with um, the security that prosperity brings. So in verse 6, this one is saying, He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Through all generations, I shall not meet adversity. So in other words... My investments are secure. I have, I have set myself up nicely. I'm, I'm, I'm building bigger barns. I have so much that I can build bigger barns and fill those up. I have nothing to fear and no need of God. I've done all of this for myself. This is the attitude of the secure atheist. The fourth characteristic is vile speech. In, in Romans chapter 3, verse 14, to describe what it means to be under sin, uh, Paul quotes this very psalm to describe that, what that means, to be trapped under sin. And I don't think this should be a surprise to any of us because of the way in which language now is being used. It, it's hard to even know what to say at times. Because language is being used to, to is, is being weaponized, it's, it's being uh, used to, to manipulate and, and to even to change reality. David calls this vile speech. And later in, in, in the New Testament, in James chapter 3, 8, James warns us that, that our tongue is dangerous. This is how he describes our tongue. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The fifth characteristic is violence. In verses 8 through 11, this is, this is a person who is, who is not only cruel verbally, but is also cruel physically. And the worst part about it is that this person comforts themselves in their violence with the idea that God is, is, is either blind to what he is doing, because he's not doing anything about it, so this one assumes that he's doing the right thing, or that God is at least forgetful, that he is unfaithful to his people. Now, while these characteristics are atrocious, and you think, wow, that is, a, that, is a, that is an awful person. You need to understand that these characteristics are not describing the aggressive, theoretical atheist who is at war with God, trying to get him, get him out of every part of reality. That's what our minds would want to run to and like to run to and say those awful atheists. They need to get it together. No, this is a description of the typical average weekly churchgoer or religious person whose faith stops the minute they leave this building 
This is a person, a person like this doesn't let, uh, let the God of the Bible infiltrate any other area of their life. God is absent from their job. God is absent from their marriage, from their parenting, from their dating life, from their friendships, from their hobbies. He's absent from how they spend their time, how they spend their money. He's not even a thought in their mind. The sacred, we could say, stays in the sacred spaces for this person. And it's all very practical. I mean, it's great. You can come here and you can feel good about yourself and sing some nice songs and hear a nice message and then walk away and say, I can check that box and I did what I needed to do for God this week and I can go on and live my life in the way that I want to live my life. It's all very practical. But it's also all very dangerous. Because it's in this moment where you can begin to slip away into theoretical atheism. In his book, um, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman gives a description of three types of worlds that people live in. One, uh, the first world is the pagan world, but it's also, it's a pagan world because it's not the, the god of Christianity that they worship, but it's, they, they have a moral framework that's built around uh, something. It's built around a higher power, something greater than themselves. So they at least acknowledge that there's something, some kind of force out there, some kind of higher deity. So that's the first world. The second world is the world in which we, uh, that call ourselves Christians, live in. It's a world that is characterized not, not so much by fate, but by faith in the one true God of the Bible. And the, this world hangs in our atmosphere all the time, especially in, in, in the South, because so much of, of Western culture has been shaped by Christianity. So understand this. This world, this second world that Carl Truman talks about here is where both King David, a man after God's own hearts, and the rebels that we are reading about in verses 2 through 11, both would say, given a choice, that's the world I live in. And I'm sure you could think about people in your life that would say the same thing, that you would look at them and say, I don't think you live in this world. You think you do, but I just don't think you believe what you think you believe. And then you have this third world that we're seeing a lot more of these days that doesn't root their culture, doesn't root their social orders or moral imperatives in anything sacred. Instead, they justify themselves on the basis of themselves instead of something outside themselves, meaning instead of something transcendent, instead of something supernatural. So when you, hear, when you hear someone say, and you may say it, you do you, and I'm not just saying that to be culturally relevant here, it's just something that we say without thinking. When you hear that, that is not just a cute little saying, that is a dangerous worldview. You do you means you define reality the way in which you want to. You define reality in the way that makes you happy. So if you were born a man, truly, and you want to be a woman, you can do that. You do you. That's your worldview. 
And let me just say, this third world is the world that you are in danger of slipping into. Because you'll end up abandoning the notion of the sacred, and then you'll replace it with yourself. You'll replace it with what you think makes you happy. We could even say that King David, our psalmist here, who is an author uh, of the scriptures, our psalmist is in danger of this right now. Or at the moment of his writing, he, he asked two questions in verse 1 that have not been answered, nor will they be answered by the end of his prayer. And he's just described the reality of the world in which he lives, and it's terrible. From David's point of view, because of the questions he asked, David is saying God is not at work here. And it would seem that David's only natural response would be to become an atheist alongside these in verses 2 through 11. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. God has given up on us. But he can ask the questions that he asks and bring up the depressing reality of those around him and not lose hope because he has a practical belief and a practical understanding of who God is. So in these last verses, in verses 12 through 17 of Psalm 10, we see a man who never has his questions answered. Verses 2 through 11 bring no solace to him. They bring no resolution. Yet even in the purview of, of oppression... David rests in the future day of justice. David looks ahead to the promises of God. Even in the frustration that comes from seeing uh, the practical atheists prosper, while others who really need to prosper just continue to suffer, David still trusts in God. And so can you. This is how you can do it. Three ways to respond. I know I'm giving you a lot of lists today, but three ways you can respond. One, practically, is to ask. Ask God to intervene. In verse 12, David asks God to act. He says, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, O God, and forget not the afflicted. David's response is is not to despair, but to call on God who is not far off or hidden. David knows he is close. He saw injustice and prayed for God to intervene. So ask. Second is to remind. David reminds himself That although God does not seem to see what is happening, and you have in verse 11, even says, this is is the way the the wicked think. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. God's forgotten all about us. God's forgotten about you. God God has hidden his face. He's never going to see your suffering. So David reminds himself in verse 14 that God does see God is concerned, and God will eventually act. Look at verse 14. 
verse 14. David says, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. David reminds himself of, uh, of that, that not only does David, I mean, that not only does God see what's happening, David says that he writes it down. That he writes down what is going on so that later his justice may be full against the sinner. So ask, remind yourself, and then third is to wait. God's wrath may be delayed. God's work in your life may be delayed. But let me just tell you this. It is not canceled. It may not look the way you want, but it is not canceled. Brett reminded us of that when he read 2 Peter for us. 2 Peter 3, 3-10. That is our reminder for today out of the New Testament. Let me just read it for us again. Because it kind of sums up even uh, Psalm 1 and 2 and here in Psalm 10. It says this, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. In a thousand years as as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. David is thinking about this eventual judgment that is to come. And he rests in that future outcome. Now, you may not be consciously waiting on God's wrath to come upon the wicked. I don't think I've ever sat down with any of you and you said, man, I am just so ready for God's wrath to just blow them to smithereens. I have not sat down with any of you in that regard. But I have sat down with many of you and heard many of you and that you are waiting for different things. That you're waiting for God to provide for you. You're waiting for God to bring you a spouse. You're waiting for God to give you a baby. For God to heal you. For God to save your children. To give you clarity about the future. And let me just say this to you. Because I know those, those things are difficult. But if you can look at Psalm 10 and see that David can look at the suffering around him and still get to this point in these last verses and, and, and say these words, 
you can know that God cares for you just as much as he cares for those suffering in, in, in Psalm 10. That he cares for you. That he is there, as Francis Schaeffer would remind us, that he is there and that God is not silent. So don't stop praying for God's intervention. Remember that God hears you. He has not forgotten you. He has not hidden his face from you. He is there. Wait and hope for God's answer. Even if that answer is not what you were hoping for. Because God is a good father. And he's good to his children. And because the way of the righteous is to live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So let me just close with these words from the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. Habakkuk says this, he's saying this to God's people who are suffering immensely. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. And then let's pray. God, you are so good to us. Even in the midst of our suffering and our waiting and our um, asking of you and um, of all of these things in our life that are so real and painful, God, we can say, as Habakkuk said, that we will rejoice in the Lord, that we will be joyful in, in God our Savior, and so I pray that for those who are suffering in this way. That even though they may see the turmoil of verses 2 through 11 in their own life, that they would be able to rejoice in the God of their salvation. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, every Sunday we celebrate the Lord's Supper together to be reminded of, of the God of our salvation, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us in the gospel. That he has uh, sent his only begotten son so that uh, you and I would not perish, but have everlasting life. That, that Jesus is the one who stands under the wrath of God for us because we cannot do that. We would be crushed if Jesus did not stand for us. And so this simple act of the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. This, this little piece of bread and, this, and this, this grape juice that we're about to pour out, this reminds us of this great reality that we have in the gospel. So keep that in mind as you, as you take the Lord's Supper together. If you don't have one of the little cups, they are out here on the table. You can grab one um, when you need to to, 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 to remind yourself of what it is that God has done for you in Christ.
Now, if you are a, a believer in Christ, we ask uh, that you come and celebrate the supper together. You don't have to be a member of Christ the King Church. Uh, this is for all of those who profess Christ as their Savior. So we want you to come and take and to celebrate the goodness of God in Christ. Um, but we also want to offer a warning to those of you who may not be believers yet. You may be hanging out in kind of that uh, atheist worldview, and you're, but you're here. Or at least you're hearing me at some point in the week. 